Recorded live at Toxin Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. From the Tox and Tasting Studios, this is Bullhagen. This is Beric. And this is Vicker. And Peter's here. Hey, Pete. Welcome to the show on a, a beautiful Wednesday morning. Our favorite time to record. Ah. Um, and this is Clerical Errors Podcast. Show that shows you what's behind the collar. Yeah. So how you? How's everybody doing? Good. You get through your Christmases all right. <laughs> Still in a haze. Still in a haze. <laughs> <laughs> yep. How about you? Oh, you know, it went steady by jerks, as they say. Any good Christmas dinners? Uh, well, we've got some crab and that we had and uh, shrimp. Actually, my mom bought like. Hundred dollars worth of crab legs. Wow! So, you know, you know, I, I must admit that uh, to the listener, we are recording this a little or before Christmas, so we're in this limbo. <laughs> we're trying to fool you, but we don't know what tends to use since this is coming out in what a week and a half. Only mine isn't fooling them because my mom literally bought like a whole bunch of crab legs. Wow! And shrimp so i've never that, had a fishy christmas before wow. so i think that was rather shellfish of her <laughs> oh <laughs> all right so um today we, we are gonna do a few things and we're getting ready for the new year yeah I, right? I, and we're gonna call this i, I think uh the the making hannah happy episode because she had a few things that we hadn't done yet and uh i feel like we we don't... Uh, Appease? Yeah. Kind of like... You remember how last episode I was going to mail those gifts to her? And it didn't happen. What do you see on the table? I, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like an epiphany gift. I mean... Right. Yeah. One of, the, one of the 12 days of Christmas. Yeah. Exactly. We, There's still time. We I have mean. syrup. We've got a, a book, a couple of books, <laughs> some soap. And uh, yeah, well, we need to get those to you. <laughs> But she had a few questions. She had a, a, a um, an is it a sin? And she also really wants us to get into the oratio, uh, meditatio, tentatio thing. And we're going to, Hannah, for you, we are going to do it. Because you know what's good content. So. All right. Well, you, guys, you guys have something to drink here? What do you have? Uh, yeah, just a can of Orange Crush. Orange Crush. I've got uh, a little thermos here of fennel tea. Oh. So it tastes like licorice, so it has kind of an anise-like taste. Sure. And uh, I don't have anything. If you're wondering how my esophagus, esophagus is going, well, um, I have to add two more things. So I'm without wheat, dairy, soy now, mm. and um, I should remember what the fourth one is. Wheat... Dairy, soy, and um, <laughs> see, I just have I would this... try to help you, but like, I haven't you haven't told me this yet either. <laughs> okay, so. all right, maybe meat, egg, egg. Boy, you know, now I'm just picturing this, you know, really sad vision of you with a Santa hat looking all down in the dumps, just chewing on a potato, not even cooked, just you know. <laughs> Yeah, because a lot of things you might put on a potato. You can't actually do it. Right. Because uh, I do know what it is just because I had, hadn't had quite come up with the egg. I, I do watch for it, you know. But, yeah. it's uh, So what are you going to eat for Christmas? Um, I can eat lots of meat. Sounds like my although, kind of Christmas. Yeah, although some of, like, uh, some of the meats are cured with some of the things I can't have. Mmm. Going out to eat is virtually impossible. Yeah, we did. I took my wife out, and we had. Uh, I had a steak and a baked potato, and some, some specially made broccoli because a lot of times they cook it with bro- with butter. So yeah, boy. So listeners, please pr- pray for Pastor Bullhagen <laughs> so he can like eat real food again. Amen. So uh. Uh, Burr, what are you preaching on? Well, what is the text there, Vicar? Uh, the the text for second Sunday after Christmas would be Matthew 2, 
13 to 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he seized and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that was that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. So, Berg, do you have your sermon for this already prepared? I do not. However, I did actually start writing a commentary on uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Really? Um, yeah, so what I did is I actually, uh, I was inspired by this by Dr. Benjamin Mays and mm-hmm. his talk on um, the applications of Scripture, done specifically from um, all Scripture is... Uh, given by inspiration of God and is useful for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Right. And so um, he had written that there were some 18th century Lutheran um, uh, Bibles that were actually set up in this way, um, where actually every chapter is broken down by the doctrine and by the reproof and, you know, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So I actually have started on that. Um, I got two chapters done. And then I life got busy, so you know. Um, <laughs> but um, so yeah, some of the things that uh, really stick out about this text are there are three prophecies that Matthew references. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, Hosea eleven one, Jeremiah thirty one fifteen, and then an unnamed prophecy in verse uh, twenty three of this reading, mm-hmm. where he simply talks about the prophets. Um, so the question is, is all of these prophecies, how are they to be taken? Are they specifically about Jesus or are they, um, what we would call typical prophecies? Um, and I think that's a question that early Lutheranism struggled with quite a bit. So here's what I wrote on, um, the Hosea 11 one. Hosea 11.1 has been interpreted differently by Lutherans. Some take this as a predictive prophecy, saying that it can only refer to Jesus, being like um, Genesis, you know, the seed of the woman, or Isaiah 7, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The better position, however, is that this prophecy is a type. God calls the nation of Israel his son, Exodus 4.22 and Jeremiah 31.9. The collective nation of Israel is supposed to be a picture of the singular Christ even though they often failed because of their sin. Israel's calling from, I- from Egypt is a foreshadowing of what would take place in the life of our Lord. And then on Jeremiah 31, uh, a voice is heard in Ramah. That's from uh, Jeremiah mm-hmm. 31, uh, 15. That's also been interpreted differently by Lutheran theologians. Early Lutherans favored this prophecy as a direct prophecy, that it was only about the Bethlehemite infanticide. It was just about the baby boys who were killed in Bethlehem. Later, Lutherans favored a typological explanation, which is the better position. In Jeremiah 40, verse 1, we see that Ramah is the staging ground for the deportation to Babylon. The cause of weeping is not the deportation, but that it seems that God is revoking his promise of a Messiah since he is now taking away the land and the people. And in Matthew 2, we see that this situation is happening, happening again. If Jesus is killed, the hope of Israel and all the world is lost, but God shall keep Israel's hope by preserving Jesus. And by preserving Jesus, the murdered babies of Bethlehem also have the hope of the resurrection. So, so, so uh, with that then, um, 
you're basically saying that uh, in Christ Jesus, he is kind of the perfect fulfillment of the children of Israel. Yes, in that he has Israel narrowed down to one. Um, one thing is there are two different types of prophecies mentioned in the Bible. There are predictive pros- prophecies, which mm-hmm. are exclusively about the Messiah, um, mm-hmm. and then there are uh, other prophecies which are more types or images or pictures. And, and, and uh, I think the problem that sometimes the- theologians will have with that is is we run with a... Uh, a hermeneutic. Vicar, what's a hermeneutic? It's a kind of method or a way of reading and understanding a text. Yes. And one of the the hermeneutics that we are taught, like the first the first quarter of seminary is that scripture has one intended sense. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, there are those who say, well, it only has it can only refer to one or the other because there's this kind of this wooden, there's only one intended sense. Of this of the prophecy, so it can only. But but what would you what would you say to that, Berg? Well, I think there's no better response than what Martin Luther says in his commentary um, on uh, Matthew verses one uh, chapters one through eighteen, mm-hmm. which just came out uh, from CPH maybe a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were actually supposed to be sermon helps for a young pastor. Can't remember his name at the time, but he says that uh, Christ and the apostles use general expressions, and then apply them singularly. So they use the general expressions of Moses and the Old Testament in some cases, and then uh, apply them in a singular sense to what is happening in their own day and age. This isn't to say that there aren't specific prophecies um, that are only fulfilled in Jesus. We're not saying that. Mm -hmm. The the whole point is that um, what Matthew is doing here and especially if you read the context of Jeremiah 31 and Hosea 11, um, he is talking about instances in the life of the people of Israel. Um, in Hosea 11, he talks about Israel being God's son, being called out of, out of Egypt, and yet this son fails. Mm-hmm. So in Jesus, we get a do-over, in a sense. We get Israel reduced down to one. Um, where Israel failed... Uh, Jesus is going to succeed. And uh, in, in uh, the Gospels, that that is why, for, for example, you see a point of making sure that we see that Jesus was circumcised. Circumcised, the uh, obeyed, uh, you know, obeyed the messianic, you know, obeyed the, the law, uh, all those kind of things. Right. Uh, why he was tempted in the wilderness, right? I mean, every time we read the temptation of Jesus, like we do in Lent, um, our mind should automatically go back to the wilderness uh, where the children of Israel uh, struggle and strove and died because they were unworthy, because they didn't keep the faith. And and we also then take that singular temptation also to understand how Christ defeated our temptation. He fulfilled that for us, where we have failed in the face of temptation, Jesus has conquered, and he gives us the victory by his death. Mm-hmm. So, getting back to the text then, um, there's also, uh, I think, some just some practical, there's so many things you can bring out from this text. Yeah, one, I... one is the, the divine protection, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, one is, you know, have a discussion of some of the first martyrs you know those in, mm-hmm. those children who died, in a sense, protecting Jesus. The sword was meant for Jesus, and, and they took it. Um, you know the physical judgment of tyrants, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, Herod dies very horribly, as we find out from Josephus. Um, we see the divine protection of the uh, well, the guide, the guardianship of angels, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you could play around with Egypt. You know, just the idea of Egypt and uh, and use the Old Testament lesson in order to kind of bring some of that stuff out. And it also reminds me, I brought this up in a, a Wednesday evening sermon not too long ago, where where we think we're, his humanity, we think we're so powerful, like Herod did. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not as powerful as we think we are. You know, I, I'm thinking of the virus, uh, the vaccine, 
how they protect it with armored guards. And it has to be frozen. It was at like 94 degrees below Fahrenheit. And uh, they're, and they're treating it with like such precious cargo. Like this is our greatest achievement. You know, we created this vaccine. And when you really think about it, well, it's, it shows our weakness. A little virus we can't do, haven't been able to do anything about. And we protect it as though it is life itself. And it's only a temporary fix when you think about it. Because, you know, we're just, even if it does work, we're just delaying death. Because death is still going to come to us. And when, if you think about it, when God sent his son to this earth, did he send all these great armor guards that would, that people could see? You know, Mary and Joseph and, uh, but yet they have the divine protection that we couldn't see of, of God and, and the angels. And so... Actually, another good point to bring out, too, is uh, the guardianship of Joseph. Like, here's one of the greatest saints of the Bible, and it's very short and pithy, but, I mean, he does what a father does. Right. You know, he uh, protects Jesus, right? Even though Jesus is not his son, mm-hmm. uh, he protects Jesus. He suffers great harm to Jesus, you know, for Jesus' sake. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he leaves his own country for Jesus' sake. And uh, and he just... <laughs> so I think, you know, if you're looking for a good example of fathers and fatherhood, I mean, you really can't get any better than that, right? And and there is also, I think, a, a question where we think of the, the innocence and the loss that that provides, you know, how the Bible leans into that. The Bible says this is going to happen from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, the world is going to hate the message. There's going to be violence. And yet it recognizes that God came to do something about it. You know, he came to fix this situation in an eternal way. So murdered babies, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Don't put make that the title, Peter. <laughs> As tempting as that would be. So. All right. So, Vicar, any comments on the text? Uh, not the moment, no. And uh, I believe uh, we might get, uh, with that, uh, we might get some phone messages from someone I know in our your discussion particularly. Oh, yeah. I'm sure we will. So... In a good way. Anyways, all right. So that brings us to, I have a what it is, what it ain't, and what it could be. Peter, play the intro. What is it? Who knows? We do. It's time for what it is, what it ain't, what it could be. What I have today is we had a request from our associate producer, our podcast bomb, Anna, um, for us to talk about... Oratio, meditatio, and tentatio, and and I kind of have a, just a what it is because I because uh, if I talk about what it ain't just yet, people I don't think people don't know what it is. So we're going to talk about what it is, and then in subsequent podcasts, we're going to delineate each one and explain each one a little further. Okay, so what it is. What it is. We'll start off with uh, oratio is a reference to prayer. Meditatio, easy enough, is meditation. And tentatio is temptation. Uh, and so that we'll start with that with the first what it is. That is what it is. Another what it is. This was uh, uh, given by Martin Luther. This is what he used to teach Theology, because I think we forget that really Martin Luther at his heart was a, a teacher, an educator, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, where did he teach? At the University of Wittenberg. And uh, and so uh, the beautiful, probably the most beautiful example where we see Luther as a teacher. Well, there's a couple of places we see it at his hymns. Yep. We see it in the large and small catechisms, which were meant for teaching. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he he was someone who 
not only was a pastor, he was someone who trained pastors. Okay? And so that's one thing we keep in mind in, in this, really a description of what a theologian is and what a theologian does. By the way, feel free to jump in anytime, Berg, okay? Yep, sounds good. So what it is, Martin Luther said that uh, temptation is not made by understanding, reading, or speculating, but rather by living, rather dying, and being damned. And so what Luther is saying in, in this aspect is he's saying that uh, um, theology is something that the theologian lives. This is something that he sees in his own life. It is a wrestling with him. So a theologian prays, he meditates, and he, and he is tempted, because as soon as you have a grasp on God's word, what happens? It automatically pits an enemy against you, just like um, even we saw with Jesus being born. As soon as he's born, what does he have? He has an enemy. And so this process, then, is what leads and best teaches a theologian, that it's not just speculation, it's not just ideas, it's not just um, an understanding, but really, when we think about teaching theology, you know, not only as pastors we teach theology for the brain, not only do we want uh, our catechism students to understand it, we want them also to teach in a way that they believe it. So, and that's, that's a challenge we have sometimes, isn't it, Berg? Yes, it is. So Martin Luther understood uh, that the devil, he said, is a good teacher of theology. Uh, what do you think he meant by that? That it's only by experience, it's only by temptation that we truly grasp what uh, the gospel is, uh, how deep our depravity lies, uh, and what a wonderful and large Savior we actually have. Because, because uh, if, if, the, if the devil and sin is our enemy, the temptation teaches what our enemy actually is. And if, if the theologian doesn't wrestle with these things, how does he teach it to those who, who are wrestling with it? Well, him? and don't you think, I mean, and this is, I mean, this just is from our own personal experience. I mean, look at the people who have come from other church backgrounds mm -hmm. to Lutheranism. Most of the time, they are very, very passionate about the Word of God. They're very, I mean, they grasp onto it like a dog with a bone, and they won't let it go. Right. I mean, and I, so why aren't uh, a lot of the Lutherans that grew up in the church like this, they don't seem to have a lot of times the same passion. I think a lot of it is, is because they've never actually struggled with this. They've never, they haven't gone through the battles. They haven't um, actually questioned whether they have a gracious God or not. Mm -hmm. um, and I do, I think that makes a huge difference because the the people, like some of these people who have converted and come from other places, like they had to struggle with it. They had to fight these mm -hmm. battles. They, they were in the dark night of the soul. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that's been your experience, but yeah, that, that I've seen. I've seen that quite a bit, um, where uh, certain things that uh, those those guys they take as a given that who have been Lutherans their whole life they just take that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's just of course you know, and and the guys who who know the other side well are like, no no no, you don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the temptations are probably a little different. Uh, especially one huge temptation that affects many middle-aged Lutherans to um, middle-aged to the upper 60s is when their kids fall away or go somewhere else or reject Lutheranism. Like, when that temptation hits, it's like, okay, rather than saying, well, we're just too strict, we got to change with the times, this should actually impel us back and say, is what we've been taught right Mm -hmm. is what we believe the truth. Um, and so these temptations take on a myriad of forms, um, and uh, it provides you with a lot of 
grist for the mill, so to speak. So, and 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 I think this is why I th- I believe that uh, when you're thinking about um, seminary training, you know, in this Zoom era where everything seems to be going long distance training, you don't have to be residential anymore. I think this is one aspect that is would be missing. Is uh, what you learn at the seminary is not just about you know the theology and the 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 knowledge that you get in class, is it? It shouldn't be. It's also the chapel, right? It's also the discussions you have over coffee. See, and and that's the thing that this oratio meditatio and tentatio they're not just for seminary students, although seminary students should be using it, right? Um, I don't know if I just skipped ahead to your next. Point no, that's fine. Not, you can go but, ahead. Yeah. But, I mean, this is what every single Christian—this is how every single Christian should live their lives. That's, that's the point. In, in, in whatever office in life that they have. Yep. Um, because, because this says nothing about preaching. This is prayer. This is thinking about God's Word, as we hear in the Third Commandment, right? Um, that we learn God's Word and gladly hear and learn it, right? Mm-hmm. You know? And temptation, this is what affects every single Christian. And it is what it does is it it takes God's word, and it's constantly applying it. Right. It uses experience not as um, the way your Baptist friends do, where you take the experience and you say, "Oh, this is what God is trying to say through the experience." You take what you experience, and you place that in context of God's word to inform what is going on, rather than the other way around. Right, and that's why like Luther drew this out of the Psalms. And there are some psalms that are very stabilizing, like Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the seat of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, right? Mm -hmm. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by streams of water, right? That whatsoever he doeth, he prospers. The wicked don't prosper, but they're like chaff. Uh, But then you have other psalms that are really destabilizing. That Mm -hmm. it's like, God, I've been faithful what in the world is going on? Why are the wicked triumphing? Why, you know, why is all of this happening to me? So, but anyway. That actually goes to my next what it is. Actually. Sorry. That is, <laughs> no, that's fine. That is taught by the Psalms, really. Mm-hmm. The, the Psalms go through this because, well, first of all, the Psalm is a prayer, and it teaches us, it shows a meditation of God's truth in that prayer, it it shows human our our own temptation that we face in the midst of it of whether it's questioning God being fearful afraid um, joyful joyful and and it takes all those in a, in a way that the theologians of God's word the Psalms that it teaches theology isn't just some abstract idea right we should probably like in a future episode talk about a little more hermeneutics in depth. Mm-hmm. on how to read, especially like the Psalms. Because, uh, you know, as we meditate, you want to get the right sense mm-hmm. of the Psalm down, too. Right. Without it, you know, being, what does this mean to me? Right. You know, you have to, when meditation takes more than just, you know, oh, this makes me think of, you know, uh, bunny rabbits or whatever. Right. Or the meditation, the sense of, um, nowadays oh, meditation is know. used to, to clear your mind of everything, right? To to empty your brain, so that you are just in the nice, quiet, safe place. I don't think that's what Martin Luther was doing when he was meditating. <laughs> no, to meditate is to think on these things, to tear apart every word, every sentence, um, to mentally masticate it, to eat it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you are what you eat. So, so what it is, all these three, oratio, meditatio, tentatio, prayer, meditation, temptation, are all each attentive to God's word, and it's a cyclical nature. For example, when you pray, you pray the word of God, and the only way a prayer is heard is through the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Yep. And we pray according to the, the will of God, the revealed will of God of Scripture, and so Prayer is informed by God's word, and then your meditation continues for deeper thought. 
and and uh, application of that word. And then tentatio, immediately with that comes a spiritual attack. Mm-hmm. It, it, because, because it questions our own sense of what is right or what we want and all those things. Which brings us, that leads us back then to what? Hopefully to prayer. Prayer, which leads you to? Call upon him in every trouble. Meditation, which yeah. are, so there, there is a cyclical nature, but all of them are attentive to God's word. It's like the hamster wheel of uh, spirituality. Yes. All right, the next, what it is, it applies to every Christian. Now, a lot of times it's used for pastors, but this process is good for everyone. And also, because it is good for the, the pastor, and it, it's also good for leaders to, to wrestle with them. I think mm-hmm. there we it's really easy to keep what our theology is as a at an arm's distance. You know, you talked about you know the difference you have seen in people who were lifelong Lutherans and those who converted to Lutheranism, and how they hold to the gospel. I see this too sometimes, where theological debates become what is right and what is wrong. It's just rather than um, which is important. But but uh, theological understanding is this is what would that trumps the applications. I don't know if I'm saying that right. So it applies to everyone, every Christian. And so what it is is when you think about the, th- the th- how we understand as pastors theology, a lot of times we'll we'll pit pastoral theology uh, against um, academic theology, or sometimes there's a temptation to pit systematic theology in with liturgical or our own private understanding of, of life as a Christian as opposed to corporate or our private life as pastors and in, in the public life of the ministry. What this does is it kind of ties some of those things together because the, 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 the life, the spiritual life of the pastor does matter. Now there's a separation because it is not the man that makes the word of God efficacious. It is the word of God. But however, if the, the pastor is a theologian, he also should be wrestling with these things as well. And uh, and I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, Berg, in your preaching. When you're preaching on something that you particularly wrestled with, for me, it's a much better sermon. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you preach... Uh, a temptation that you struggle with, you tend to understand it a little better. You can take it apart a little bit better. And um, and so that that is really, it does affect everything you do, but it really helps you understand theology in a, in a better way as pastors and as people. It's kind of like... Uh, I should make maybe make a, a bench press parable out of this. You could, you right? should. Uh, I mean, New Year's resolution, right? I mean, who would you want as a personal trainer? Would you want? Uh, Do you ever see someone? Oh, I'm a personal trainer, and they're way out of shape. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'd want them. Well, I know for sure I wouldn't want uh, the late uh, the late uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg's personal trainer. <laughs> The guy can't even do a good push-up, so. Yeah. And if you want to know the reference on that, go back and listen to earlier episodes. Yeah, bad form. Bad form. Indeed. Yeah. Um, you know, you want a trainer, generally, who's a little fitter, right? You would hope so. I mean, you listen to that a little better. Um. I don't know. I'm I'm running out of steam with this. So let's see if I got all my thoughts. Yeah, I got all my thoughts. Yeah, so... Uh, Sorry, Pete, so, I'm giving you a lot to edit. So if you want uh, somebody to lead you in this prayer life, this meditation, you know, probably read uh, some of the Desert Fathers would be a good place to start. Or Martin Luther himself. Or some of these great uh, prayers that were composed mm-hmm. that we have in our hymnal. 
right? Or um, even even read the Psalms with this understanding. Right. Um, one great resource out there that I really like is Stark's Prayer Book, mm-hmm. uh, reprinted by CPH. Uh, very, very good. Um, it has a very, very different perspective than we often have. Uh, I actually, one of my members, was uh, he bought it, and he's like, man, you know, when I first started reading, I'm like, they talk about death all the time. And, uh, but yeah, eventually he grew to understand more of it and appreciate more of it. Mm-hmm. So. All right. So that brings us to, is it a pastor piece theater? A pastor piece theater. Peter, play the intro. So uh, welcome to Pastor's Peace Theater. With Pastor Berg. All right. So uh, our... This uh, this pastor piece theater is from a guy by the name of Bites. He was instrumental in actually uh, causing the big rupture between the Protestant Conference and uh, the Wisconsin Senate. Okay. By his essay, uh, "The Just Shall Live by Faith." How do you spell it? Uh, B e i t z. Okay. Now, some of his stuff, I'm. There are other guys I like better than him, uh, but I really thought that this uh, meditation today. Uh, that I'm going to read here in just a few moments uh, will actually... Um, I thought it was really good. So, it's entitled, God Saves Only Failures. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to the, this man will I look, even to him who is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. We are born into this world. As we grow in years, we also grow in knowledge of the world about us in which we live and move and have our being. Our schooling, if right, whether in formal institutions or informal in the home or otherwise, is to help us learn to know and utilize and appreciate the things and people in this world of which we have become inhabitants. But long before we get through with our formal schooling, we realize from experience what Shakespeare realized and described so forcefully, that the world is out of joint. And we enthusiastically believe it is up to us to set it right, or at least to do what we can to make this world a better place to live in for having passed through it. All of which is confirmed in so many words in the speeches of thousands of valedictorians speaking for their classmates each year at our high schools. And which is the ideology also of the thousands more turned out by the mills of bigger, of higher education, of learning, as we hear their theme song, Education Will Set Us Free and Save the World is also the main plank of our political platforms. All of which adds up to this. Man is going to set the world right. Man is going to do it. And by so doing, pat himself on the back, make himself a name and fame, and thus manifest the spirit not always openly expressed. Behold the great Babylon which I have builded, another tower of Babel. But alongside all of this, another factor enters into the picture. Our conscience, that troublesome inner voice, makes us restless. Since distrusting and disobeying God, man knows good and evil, right and wrong. He means to do right, but ends up doing wrong, and that makes for our evil conscience. To get rid of such evil conscience, we try to justify ourselves. By nature, we are therefore, uh, by nature, we are therefore all religious. Mind you, I'm not saying that we are by nature Christians. In today's confusion, the two terms are so often used interchangeably as though they were synonyms in meaning, which is absolutely not so. We endeavor to justify ourselves. We go about doing good works, one of which, and by no means the least these days, is to build grand and imposing and hideous church buildings to the name of him whom our ever-accusing conscience knows we have offended. Great structures sprout up like mushrooms on every hand, and we think we have accomplished something when such some such edifice looms up on the horizon of the church, and the multitudes take part in the rendition of the well-appointed services. And everyone believes that God is certainly well-pleased with all this. But what is God's answer to all this? It is given through his faithful, though much maligned, prophet Isaiah. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been created by me from the beginning, saith the Lord. You see, by these words, the Lord knocks all our church attitudes and activities and good works and self-made and self-appointed holiness and religiousness into a cocked hat. You see, everything in the church may look rosy and be flourishing like a green bay tree planted beside the river of waters and present the picture of stately 
grandeur from without and from within, and yet be all wrong and a stench to the Lord's nostrils. All our religiousness may not be Christianity at all. All our doings wholly devoid of God-pleasing faith life. All may be incurring the Lord's righteous indignation, disapproval, disgust, hatred, and make him sick and tired as he expresses it through his prophet Isaiah. We cannot build him a house. He wants to build us one. We cannot give him something. It is all his to begin with. He wants to give us something. We cannot gain his goodwill and favor by our supposed good works of church or otherwise, for he tells us we have already, we already have his favor, his love, his grace, his mercy, his goodness, his truth, his forgiveness. It is not at all what we do, but what he has done for us. Our salvation does not depend upon us, but solely and, absolute, and absolutely upon him. God does not look at what we are doing in all our religious church busyness and activities or prayers or good works or anything we do. Rather, he says in our text, But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. God looks only to those that are poor in spirit, for theirs is by the grace of his the kingdom of heaven. God looks not to those of a self-righteous, good works spirit, but to those of a contrite, that is, of a smashed, broken-hearted spirit, realizing that in them dwelleth no good thing. To those that confess with the Apostle Paul, the good that I would, I do not, and that, but that which I would not, that I do. God looks only to the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind in spirit and faith. The great physician ministers not to the well, to the self-righteous, but to those that are sick. He came not to call the self-righteous, but those that know themselves to be sinners to repentance into his kingdom. Christ came to receive sinners, and only such can he save. He sits down with publicans and sinners, looks to them, and after them, eats and rejoices with them. He looks only to the Isaiahs that cry in anguish of soul because of their sins. I am undone, a man of unclean lips. He looks only to the Davids who in their unclean heart and life cry out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God looks only to publicans in his church and temple who in their sinful misery cannot as much as lift up their eyes unto heaven, but beat upon their troubled and self-accusing breast, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. God looks only to the bewildered, the confused, the hounded, the persecuted, the slandered, the spiritually crippled. God looks only on those that tremble at his word, both to law and its just condemnation, and unto the glad gospel and its saving power from such hell. God looks only to those prodigal sons and daughters in the church so-called who realize that theirs was a life of the lust of the flesh, and a lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. God looks only to sinners. God looks only to those who have failed. God looks only to failures, of which each one feels himself and herself the chief, the main one. To such and to such only, he looks to deliver them. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of just such and only such. What, very nice, Berg. What, what was it that really struck a chord with you with that? I like the God looks and delivers only the failures, which I think is uh, appropriate for this time of year after the whole Christmas burnout, mm -hmm. uh, when people might be fail feeling pretty failure-tastic. And I always thought that we should start a group called Losers for Christ. Yeah, I mean, you know, God only loves the losers, you know? Um, and uh, we do need to keep it moving a little bit, just because uh, Vicar and I have to go. We meet with a family here pretty soon for a uh, to make arrangements for a funeral, so... Um, want to be aware of that, but um, we did get some correspondence from Hannah. We won't get to the it is a sin today. Sorry, no. Hannah. We'll have to finish that next time. Yeah, that's right. We got an email from Hannah. Uh, she says, uh, hello, clerics, but mostly Pastor Berg. Uh, as a mom, I really appreciate the guidelines and examples you give of how to raise God-fearing children. I had a whoopsie-doodle moment the other week when Pastor Berg exhorted parents to never discourage our children from praying, for I had recently just done that. My toddler was already to pray before eating some speck of food, and I said, oh, we don't need to pray before eating this. Never again. And now I have a tip of my own. Uh, before Salome's baptism, I dug out my first daughter's baptismal gown, which was stored with her baptismal candle. I had the best intentions of pulling it out at her baptismal anniversary and lighting it, but alas, that hasn't happened. So I decided to incorporate both girls' candles 
into our regular practice of lighting a candle for evening devotions. On the nights when we recite the part of the catechism explaining holy baptism, we light both big canos, as my toddler calls them, and recall their baptisms. Now those candles are not left in a closet. Thank you for your dedication to the show. I can't say it's the highlight of my Sunday because I typically encounter Christ through the Word and Sacrament every Sunday, but I surely look forward to each new episode. Your sister in Christ and podcast mom, Hannah. Well, thank you, Hannah. Uh, that's, a, that's a good uh, example that you, you give. Did you uh, do that with your kids? No, Ce- not... Celebrate their baptismal birthdays? Not, not, no, not like we should have. Because I've been thinking about that. Uh, with Stephen, we actually want to do Saints Days. So, um, so like for his, uh, because his Saints Day is on December 26th, mm-hmm. the Feast of, C- of St. Stephen. Uh, so we actually want to kind of make that more of a... A deal too. Sure. Um, What's know. a saint's day? So a saint's day is when the church sets aside a particular day to celebrate, remember, uh, and learn from uh, the saints or the holy people, both in the Bible and throughout uh, Christian history. So, for example, I think the um, January one is Abel. And so you're saying because Stephen is. How does that make it his his saint's day? Well, the same name. Yeah. So my so we named my we named my son after after Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian Church. And so uh, we're still trying to work out exactly what um, we're gonna do. And I've got a nephew. His name is John, and his saint's day is on uh, Sunday on the twenty seventh. So um, hopefully we can. It'd be nice to do a little something like that just to remind yeah. them. Why they were named, what these, what these people did, mm-hmm. uh, and um, why it's important for faith and life, right? Mm-hmm. To emulate their faith uh, and also their good works if they're in that particular vocation. So you know, as they get a little older. So, so Peter, do we have a time to, for then just a quick uh, news at Bothersburg to finish the show? Whatever you have time for. Yeah, we got two minutes, seven, seven to ten minutes to do that to finish off. Pick one. Peter, play the intro. There's fake news. There's real news. Then there's real news that Berg wishes was fake. It's time to hear news that bothers Berg. So uh, this news story uh, comes from uh, The Sun. A dead man comes back to life screaming as morgue staff prepare to drain his blood and embalm him. Ah! Uh, at 32 years old, he regained consciousness in the hospital mortuary four hours after he was pronounced dead, according to the the paper. Ah, uh, you know, I used to have, I used to have uh, just terrible, terrible nightmares about being buried alive. <laughs> so, uh, when I was a kid, so. His uncle claims that his nephew regained consciousness and wailed in pain. After the mortuary staff made an incision in his leg to start the embalming process. Oh my gosh. I'm surprised he didn't bleed to death. <laughs> we cannot understand why this person was still alive. So, does that bother you, Berg? That super bothers me. <laughs> oh my gosh. What I like about the picture, if you go back, scroll up to the picture, Peter. I like about the picture, he's, he's wearing a mask in the picture. You know, like, if you've been through that, like... Yeah, oofta. You don't need to wear a mask at that point, well, do you? First of all, I mean, like, where's the... What kind of doctor staff is this? I mean, holy cats. <laughs> where did they do their... Where did they do their uh, residency? Holy... I, I just... Oh. oh, that reminds me of a joke. Okay. So, um, this uh, daughter and her new husband are flying back. And uh, the mom is waiting in the um, in the terminal, and the daughter exits the plane. And right behind her, there's this seven foot tall Zulu warrior with the bone sticking out of his nose. Mm-hmm. The mom runs up to the daughter, slaps her, and says, "You fool! I said a rich doctor." <laughs> <laughs> That's what these people remind me of. 
So, Vicar, is that a fear of yours? I'm so I'm surprised that you did not quote Monty Python, since you're the Monty Python fan. It wasn't bad taste. I thought you'd say, "I'm not dead yet. <laughs> I'm getting better." <laughs> yeah, with with all the pandemic stuff going on, it's like eh, that that might be in bad taste. That's that's what we're good at. This yeah, is the clerical ears podcast, Vicar. We lean you lean can make into that stuff. as long as you call it out, right? Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, I was I was still just trying to process like, wait, what? How did they get this figured out here? Like, what was was there well, any he started medical screaming, professional, I think. you know, involved in this? Hmm. I'll be honest. I got stuck going. What? Hmm. Yeah. Poor doctor. What, what does he have to be a rich doctor? I don't. I don't really get it. <laughs> the rule of dad jokes is don't think about it. All right. Because it's a witch doctor, not a rich doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it eventually. Thank you. <laughs> don't exp- Killed the joke. I think it's even more funny. <laughs> well, she did find a doctor that was outstanding in his field. <laughs> All right. Is, is, the, is the thing now where we just start making dad jokes that aren't dad jokes because they're just like not even punny or anything? It's, well, know, well, oh, yeah, you just keep churning them out. Now they're butter puns. <laughs> Do you know what you call a psychic... Uh, a midget, you know, psychic who kills people. A small medium at large. <laughs> I believe we're rap- rapidly deteriorating yes. and we should end the show. That brings us to the end of the show. Yes. On that note, Vicar and I have to go make funeral plans. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas, guys. We end with we, we end with death and, you know, we began with death and we ended with death. So Yeah. Which is kind of what Oratio Tentatio Meditatio does. Indeed. Uh, well, thank you. I'm Bullhagen. I'm Berg. I'm Vicar. And may your embalming happen after you're dead. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast, on Twitter at clericalheirsp for podcast, or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time.